welcome to Infatuated, the podcast for people who really fancy a good story. I'm Emily. And I'm Rebecca. And this week is all about repetition and parallels. <laughs> Emily is going to discuss Helene Wecker's The Gollum and the Ginny. And I am going to dive into the device of sets of poems. So get ready. <laughs> get ready. <laughs> cool. So Emily, what are you infatuated with this week? I am infatuated with The Golem and the Jenny by Helene Wecker, which is so good. (laughs) So this came out 2013 and I think it was originally supposed to be a standalone, but there's actually a sequel coming out, which I think will be out by the time this episode goes up. Exciting. And this is a story of two mythical creatures who both end up in New York in 1899 and they form this unlikely friendship. So it's a really beautiful book. It's very reminiscent of Erin Morgenstern's books and the way she weaves lots of like seemingly disparate stories into one big story. Mm-hmm. And like there is plot, there is drama, but it's more about the characters in the world and like I said, the way they all weave together. Mm-hmm. So as well as the golem and the Jenny, there are other characters' perspectives. You also get like some kind of memories or backstory of one character, characters whose stories take place centuries ago. It's all just very magical and whenever you turn the page you're not quite sure whose story you're going to hear and it's very cute. Oh, I love the sound of that. <laughs> so I thought I would first explain what a golem and a jenny are because I knew what a golem was before reading because I'd weirdly listened to an episode of and that's why we drink about them and I thought I knew what a jenny was because there is an episode of Supernatural with one of them in it but as with many of the creatures on that show I don't think they were <laughs> quite accurate. Yeah because I feel like <laughs> there was a golem in The Witcher and there was a jinn in The Witcher but I don't know if that's the same as a jenny. Yeah, so there's a few different pronunciations and spellings. So I'm saying Jenny because that's what's on my copy Mm. and that's like what happened, like what came up when I researched it. But I I have seen people pronounce it Jin and Jenny as well. So I'm just going with what's on my copy. Mm. So, But yeah, so I'll explain what they are in general and then I'll explain what they are in the book. And then we'll go from there. Sweet. So, a golem is a figure from Jewish folklore. It's a creature made of clay by a rabbi and is then assigned a master. And essentially, a golem is a protector of their master. They have, like, super strength. They have to do their master's bidding and also um, protect them from harm. And if a golem doesn't have a master, then they can become really violent and have to be destroyed. Mm. So every golem is brought to life with particular Hebrew words which the master says, and then there's another Hebrew incantation to be said to destroy it. Okay. So the golem in this novel is a very exceptional kind of golem. She is made of clay, but also human hair and nails and teeth. And she was created for her master who wanted a wife. He didn't just ask for like a protector or obedience, he also wanted a woman with curiosity, intelligence and to be quote-unquote proper. 
So this golem is created exactly to those specifications. She looks like a human woman and she is packed away in a crate to head from Poland to New York with her master. Except the master gets too impatient to wait until New York to wake her, so he does it on the ship. And then on the ship, he dies of appendicitis. So so the golem arrives in New York with no master and no knowledge of what it is to be like a human. That's so sad. It's really sad, (laughs) yeah. Okay, so a jenny comes from pre-Islamic Arabian folklore and is kind of what us Westerners would call a genie. So I've seen a few different pronunciations, like I said, of this word and it's spelled differently in different editions of the book. I don't know if it's country to country because I have seen two UK editions that spelled it differently. And oh. I'm like, I don't I don't understand. So that's just why I'm going with Jenny. But yeah, there are some Jen who grant wishes, but that's not really the point of Jen. They're actually invisible spirits made of fire who can tr- transform into animal or human shapes. Hmm. Um, and water is a danger to them. Because obviously if they're made of fire, they can be extinguished if they get too wet and die. Huh. I think <laughs> in The Witcher, the Jenny did come out, or the gin came out of a bottle. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there was something to do with the water. It came out of the lake in a bottle. Mm. But like, yeah, they had to do, I don't know, I can't even remember the episode now, but it was cool. Yeah. So the Jenny in this novel has been trapped in a, a jar like a, I think it, they were keeping olive oil in it, <laughs> um, for over a thousand years. Uh, a metal worker called Arbile in New York's Little Syria is trying to like take some dents out of this antique jar. And when he splits part of the design on the outside of it to then like fix it, the Jenny comes out in human form with an iron bar on his wrist. And it turns out he was trapped in that jar in the Syrian desert many centuries ago by a man he calls a wizard. And after that jar being like passed through generations of families, it ended up here in Little Syria. Mm. So we have the two mythical creatures, the golem, who ends up being called Shava, and the Jenny, who ends up being called Ahmad, in New York in 1899 together. And... I tried to narrow down my quotes, but I'm going to be honest, (laughs) this may be a long one, (laughs) because what I think is really incredible about this book is the parallels. So there's loads of examples of parallel storytelling, which like amongst many uses is a really great way of connecting characters. Mm -hmm. And the first example I noticed in this book is that Wecker writes both Shava's and Ahmad's first time seeing a certain New York landmark. So I'm going to read both of those scenes. Shava's comes first. And the name that's mentioned, Rotfeld, is her now dead master. Okay. That's going to come up. The constant thrum of the ship's propellers quieted to a purr. The ship slowed. And then came the distant sounds of voices, yelling and cheering. Curiosity made the golem rise at last from her crate, and she emerged onto the foredeck into the noonday sun. The deck was crowded with people, and at first the golem didn't see what they were waving at. But then, there she was, a grey-green woman standing in the middle of the water, holding a tablet and bearing aloft a torch. Her gaze was unblinking, and she stood so still. Was it another golem? 
Then the distance became clear and she realised how far away the woman was and how gigantic. Not alive, then, but the blank, smooth eyes nevertheless held a hint of understanding. And those on deck were waving and shouting at her with jubilation, crying even as they smiled. This, too, the golem thought, was a constructed woman. Whatever she meant to the others, she was loved and respected for it. For the first time since Rotfeld's death, the golem felt something like hope. Oh, so sweet. I love that. Like, already I'm like the metaphor of liberty and she's a statue. She's a woman that's like been made and now her master's dead. And she's the- yeah. Ah! Oh yeah, I'll be talking about that in a moment. I can imagine, <laughs> but I'm very excited already. Yeah, and I'll just read Ahmad's first sighting of the Statue of Liberty as well, and then I'll talk about both of them. Apologies, by the way, listeners, we have builders outside. Yeah, I'll do my best to edit them out. <laughs> <laughs> At the horizon, the fading light picked out an undulating line of land. On an island in the middle distance, there stood an enormous statue in the shape of a woman made of what looked to be some greenish metal. The scale of the statue was boggling. How many rocks must have been melted? How much raw metal collected to create her? And how did she not break through the thin disk of land and fall into the sea? According to Arbili, this bay was only the smallest part of an ocean whose vastness defied comprehension. Even in his native form, he could never have hoped to cross it, and now that native form was lost to him. And then I'm just going to skip ahead a couple of pages. The thought came, crawling, hideous. He might be trapped like this forever. No, he pushed the thought away. He would not accept defeat so easily. He looked down at the iron railing, then gripped it with both hands, concentrating. He was near exhaustion. The confinement in the flask had apparently destroyed his strength. But even so, within a few moments, the metal was glowing a dull red. He tightened his grip and then let go, leaving behind an outline of his fingers pressed into the railing. No, he wasn't helpless. He was still a gen, one of the most powerful of his kind, and there were always ways. Again, I'm just kind of going to skip ahead. I'm just going to literally just read you like the final line of this section, which is, If he must be marooned in an unknown land, surrounded by a deadly ocean, and constrained to one weak and imperfect form, at least he'd ended up somewhere worth exploring. <laughs> oh! So yeah, I, I love both of those. Both of those scenes are within the first 40 pages of the book. And I just love how the Statue of Liberty, which is obviously a symbol of America and liberation, is one of the first things both of them see mm. of this like strange place that they have fatefully <laughs> ended up in. And I think it's so beautiful, like you were saying, how Shava connects with Liberty because she's also a man-made woman and Shava can see from this boat filled with people searching for a new life that she's the symbol of hope for so many people and that gives Shava her own hope that she'll be okay without her master and I just think that's so sweet. (laughs) And then with Ahmad, it's a different realisation. Like at first you have him see the statue is pointless. It's made of all this metal that he sees as a waste um, because he can like craft metal I think you can tell from that quote because he's really warm (laughs) he can like melt metal down and make stuff with it but he reflects on his imprisonment and the fact he's been bound to this human body he's also on an island um, because he's in Manhattan so he's literally surrounded by something that could kill him but as he reflects he does see that he's still powerful 
so much more powerful than a human even in that body and then the statue also becomes a symbol of hope for him too and that's what i love about these characters is that they're not even close to meeting yet Mm. but like you can already tell that even though they perceive the world differently they kind of end up in the same place emotionally with like a sense of hope and nervous excitement about their new home i love that (laughs) so i thought i would also share another way the parallel storytelling works and that's by creating a parallel between time so as we know amad is over a thousand years old and didn't always live in that jar so we're actually given some of his backstory from before then Mm. and i thought i'd give an example of like how seamlessly this is done so this first little passage is from the present day in New York and he is out in the middle of the night because he doesn't sleep and he's propositioned by a sex worker because, you know, man walking about alone at night is mm. a good prospect. Okay, so I'm kind of going to read this in like little bits but I'll, I'll point it out for you. Her hair was dark and long and fell in a curtain over her eyes but from underneath it she was watching him. She raised one languid hand to push back the hair from her eyes and the gesture tugged at something in the Jenny's mind. For a long moment he was certain that he knew her and that as soon as he saw her face he would remember her. And then I'm just going to skip ahead to the next page where like that section ends. He watched her go then climbed down from the roof and headed home. There was no reason for the girl to have rattled him like this. But something in the motion of her hand as she pushed back the dark veil of her hair had seemed so very familiar. And then immediately after that, there's a line break in the text, and then it says this. In her father's goat pen, Fadwa al-Hadid straightened up from her crouch on the milking stool and pushed her curtain of dark hair back from her eyes. She tied it at her neck, but it always came loose when she milked the goats, something to do with the rhythm. And again, just a little bit down the page. From his spot a little ways away, the Jenny watched her retie her hair at the nape of her neck. It was a becoming gesture, unselfconscious and private. I love that you've jumped back literally about a thousand years, but you have that connection of like the curtain of the hair mm-hmm. to bring you there. It's just such a good way of doing it, I think. Imagery. Yes. We love imagery. Yes. And with those quotes, you also have the parallel of Ahmad and a woman. So, without going into too much detail, his relationships to women are part of a series of actions which may or may not have led to him being entrapped in in the (laughs) jar. (laughs) Fuck boy genie. (laughs) So, I wanted to read out this scene where he's on another walk, uh, although this time it is during the day, because I think it does display some of that mythicality if you can call that word that both the golem and the jenny have because they may look human but they're not and this scene brings up a lot of the themes of this book which are like immigration just being foreign in a new place and the lack of humanity the jenny has as well as his fascination with humans and also that one of his main goals in life is just pleasure (laughs) (laughs) it's fair (laughs) oh yeah Yeah, so this is a bit of a longer one, but I just think it's such a good scene. Eventually the broad walk descended into a tunnel that cut beneath a carriage road. On the other side of the tunnel, a broad plaza of red brick curved along the shore of a pond. 
In the middle of the plaza, he saw what he took at first for an enormous winged woman, floating above a foaming cascade of water. No, not a woman. A sculpture of a woman, perched atop a pedestal. The water flowed into a wide, shallow basin at her feet, and then into a pool that stretched almost the width of the plaza. He walked to the pool's edge and watched the fountain, entranced. He'd never thought to see water sculpted this way, in sheets and streams that changed constantly. It wasn't as frightening as the giant expanse of New York Harbour, but still he felt a not-quite-pleasant thrill. A fine spray struck his face, a smattering of tiny needles. Serenely the woman hung above him. In one hand she carried a slender stem of flowers, with the other she reached out, gesturing to he knew not what. Her wings stretched behind her, wide and curved. A human woman, with the inhuman power of flight. But if Arbeely was to be believed, wouldn't they be frightened by such a woman? And yet the artist has sculpted her with reverence, not fear. There was movement next to him, a young woman standing nearby, watching him. He glanced at her and she quickly turned her head, pretending to study the fountain as well. She wore a dress of dark blue that cinched tightly at the waist and a large hat with a rolled brim, adorned with a peacock feather. Her brown hair was gathered in ringlets at the nape of her neck. By now the Jenny had seen enough of human costumes to know that everything about her spoke of wealth. Strangely, she seemed to be alone. She glanced back at him as if unable to help herself and their eyes met. Hers darted away again. But then she smiled, as though conceding defeat, and turned to face him. I'm sorry, she said. You seemed so entranced by the fountain, but it was rude of me to stare. Not at all, he replied. I'm indeed entranced. I've never seen anything like this before. Can you tell me, who is the woman with the wings? She's called the Angel of the Waters. She blesses the water, and all who drink it are healed. Healed? Of what? She shrugged her shoulders, a gesture that made her seem even younger than he'd thought. Of whatever ails them, I suppose. And what, the Jenny asked, is an angel? This question made her pause. She glanced him over again as if reassessing him. Likely she'd already noticed the inferior cut of his clothing and the accent in his English, but this question must have implied a strangeness not evident in his appearance. She said, well, sir, an angel is a messenger of God, a heavenly being, higher than man, but still a servant. I see. In fact, her words made little sense to him, but he sensed that pressing her further would be a mistake. He'd have to ask Arbeely. And this is what angels look like. I suppose, she said, or perhaps this is one way of picturing them. It all depends on what you believe. They stood, not quite together, gazing at the fountain. I've never seen anything like her, he said. He felt he must speak again or risk the girl drifting from him. You must be from very far away if your country has no angels, she said. He smiled. Oh, but there are angels in my land. I only didn't know what was meant by the word. But your angels aren't like her, she nodded at the woman who hovered above them. No, not like her. In my land, the angels are made of an everlasting fire. They can change form to whatever suits their mood and appear to men's eyes in that form as the whirlwind appears in the dust that it carries. She was listening, her eyes on him. He went on. The angels in my land serve no one. 
neither higher than themselves nor lower. They roam where they wish, led only by their whims. When they encounter one another, they will sometimes react with violence, or else passion. And when they encounter humans, he smiled down into her staring eyes, the results are often the same. <laughs> she glanced away hotly. For a few moments, there was only the sound of the water and others' conversations. Your land, she said finally, sounds like a savage place. It can be, at times. And in your land, is it considered proper to talk this way to a woman in a public park? I suppose not, he said. Or perhaps the women of your land are different, that you would be so three with them. No, they are not so very different, he said, amused. Though until now I would have said that they surpassed those here in both beauty and pride. And now I find my assumptions are shaken. (laughs) (laughs) It's just such a good scene, I love that. Because, yeah, it was just like a nice flirting scene. But Mm. I also feel like it carries so much with it because... He's a being who could die from being too close to water and he's letting the mist of the fountain hit him. Like he's fascinated with what humans do and make and he's trying to work out where he fits in but he finds it difficult because something like this fountain appears all over the city and it's very beautiful and yet it's a total danger to him. And this woman just assumes he's an immigrant, which he obviously is in a way, but she has no idea that when he's talking about these angels that he's actually talking about himself Mm -hmm. i just enjoy that scene (laughs) i wanted to give some limelight to shava as well obviously nice like the jenny the golem is such a fascinating character um so not long after arriving in new york she meets a rabbi who takes her in and teaches her basically how to appear human Mm. and her biggest struggle is that because she has no master so no one person whose wants and needs she has to fulfill she hears everyone's thoughts so she hears like all their wants essentially and because of her nature she wants to help them but she can't because obviously being a mind reader is not human oh my goodness and like the journey she doesn't sleep so she needs to find activities to do to keep herself busy both from just like being awake all the time and also to distract herself from what other people are thinking. Mm. And so the rabbi introduces her to baking, which she loves because it's a task that you have instructions for that you follow. And then when it's completed, you have a finished product. Um, And she likes that. She likes things that make sense. And eventually the rabbi helps her find a job in a bakery. So this scene is after she's been working there for a little while. A clay lady who's a baker. Yeah. That's so good. I know. Slowly the golem grew more accustomed to the bakery and its rhythms. Her turns at the register were no longer so frightening. She was beginning to learn which customers bought the same thing every day and which of them appreciated it when she made up their order in advance. She smiled at all of them, even when she didn't feel like it. Led by a hundred little prompts, she very carefully tried to give each of them exactly what they wanted from her. And when she was successful, they would step away from the register with a lighter heart, glad that at least one thing, this one simple errand, had gone right that day. There were still problems to solve. She tended to work too quickly, and the customers would grow anxious or irritated, thinking that she was rushing them. And so she trained herself to slow down, 
and ask after their health and their families, even when the line was long. She even learned to deal with those customers who were perpetually indecisive, who stood at the counter debating the merits of this or that. The breakthrough came when one day a woman told her to simply choose for her from what she herself liked best. But the golem had no particular favourites. She tried all the pastries and could distinguish one from another, but for her there was no like or dislike. Each was merely a different experience. She thought of choosing at random, but then, in a moment of inspiration, she did what she rarely allowed herself to do. She focused on the woman and sifted through the tangle of her conflicting desires. Something economical would be best, but she also wanted something sweet. She'd been feeling so low this week, what with the landlord raising the rent, and then that awful argument with her Sammy, so didn't she deserve something nice for herself? But then it would be gone, and she would feel no better, only poorer. I like the raisin halla on days like this, the golem said. It's sweet, but it's filling, and one halla lasts a long time. At once the woman beamed. That's it, she said, that's exactly what I wanted. And she paid for the halla and left, her spirits lifted. Happy with her success, the golem tried this technique on other indecisive customers. She was right more often than not and tried not to take her failures personally. She was coming to realise that some people, for whatever reason, would never be satisfied. Oh, I don't know why, but that almost made me cry. No, it makes me really <laughs> emotional. <laughs> yeah, I just think it's so sweet how she finds a way to keep busy, but she also finds a way to help people, which is like all she wants to do. <laughs> and it may just be a small thing, but helping someone find the bread they want like Shava feels such accomplishment over and I just love it again I think it's a scene that feels very human but it's framed in a way that reminds us that Shava isn't Mm -hmm. okay so I have one final quote today and then I promise I'll stop well that really got me (laughs) something about the the woman being like oh that was exactly what I wanted I'm just like oh yeah um (sighs) so I just wanted to find on where Shava and Ahmed are actually together because so far my quotes have been from early on where they've not met yet. Mm -hmm. So at this point in the book, they have met once before, but this is their first real conversation. And I honestly don't have a lot to say about it. Like, I think it's pretty self-explanatory, but it's these two beings who are so different from each other, but their one connection is that they're more similar than any other human. Mm. (laughs) And it is a long quote, I'm not going to lie. It's quite a few pages. And I'm going to cut out a section in the middle because it's spoilers. But yeah, basically just enjoy this interaction (laughs) to finish my presentation for today. (laughs) This is so well put together. Thank you. I'm very impressed. (laughs) The organisation. This is high production value from Emily. Yeah, it took me a few days, I won't lie. (laughs) Okay, so. There was a question, actually, something she'd been wondering all day. How did you know that I don't sleep? Now is his turn to look startled. What do you mean? You came here last night and stood beneath my window and you knew I wouldn't be asleep in bed. How? That brought him up short. He laughed in genuine surprise. I don't know, he said. I didn't even consider it. He thought for a long moment and finally said, That night, when we met, you didn't move like someone who should be home in bed. 
Perhaps that's how I knew. Everyone else walks differently at night than during the day. Have you noticed? Yes, she exclaimed, as though they're fighting off sleep or running away from it, even if they're wide awake. But not you, he said. You were lost, but you were walking as though the sun was high overhead. Little else could have weakened her defences so thoroughly. It was a sort of observation that she couldn't have shared with anyone else, not even the rabbi. He would have appreciated the insight, but he wouldn't have felt its truth with the same estrangement, the same sense of watching from a distance. He was searching her face, judging her reaction. Please, he said, I only want to talk. No harm will come to you, you have my word. Caution commanded her to turn her back on him, to return to the boarding house. But she felt the cool, bracing air on her face and the stiff ache in her limbs. She looked up at her own window, and suddenly the thought of spending the rest of the night in her room, silently sewing, seemed unbearable. Do you promise, she said, to never tell anyone else about me, ever again? I promise, he raised an eyebrow. Will you do the same? What could she do? He'd shown no duplicity. She'd have to match him. Yes, I promise. But we must go somewhere else, somewhere private, where we can't be overheard. He smiled, pleased at his success. All right, somewhere private. He considered, and then said, Have you ever been to the aquarium? Amazing, the golem murmured half an hour later. They were standing in the main gallery of the aquarium, in front of a tank of small sharks. The long, elegant shapes moved slowly in the dark water, their wide-open eyes tracking their visitors' every movement. The Jenny studied her as she walked from tank to tank. She'd been an alert presence at his side on the walk to Battery Park, and in a disapproving pair of eyes boring into his back as he melted through the padlock on the door. The guard must have tired of his post, or else the weather had grown too cold, for he was nowhere to be seen. Her looks were pleasing enough, but not tempting by any stretch. Had she been human, he would have passed her on the street without a second thought. I crossed the ocean once, the golem said. I never knew there were creatures like this below me. I've never seen the ocean, only the bay, the Jenny replied. What was it like? Enormous. Cold. It stretched on forever, in every direction. If I hadn't known otherwise, I would have thought the whole world was an ocean. He shivered at the image. It sounds terrible. No, it was beautiful, she said. The water was always changing. They stood together, silent and tense. It was strange, he thought. Now that she'd consented to talk with him, he had little idea how to go about it. I was brought to life on the ocean, she said. Then she paused as if listening to the echo of her words, not quite believing she'd said them aloud. Brought to life, he said. In a ship's hold, by a man. He was my master for a brief time, a very brief time. Each phrase seemed dragged from deep within her, as though she was fighting herself to say it. He died, soon afterward. Did you kill him? No, she turned, shocked. He'd been sick. I would never have done such a thing. I meant no offence, he said. You called him your master. I assumed he forced you to be his servant. It wasn't like that, she muttered. The weary silence fell again. They watched the sharks for a while, and were themselves watched. I had a master as well, the Jenny said. A wizard, 
I gladly would have killed him. He frowned. I hope I did kill him, but I can't remember. And he laid bare the tale, his life in the desert, the loss of his memory, his capture and incomplete release, the iron cuff that still bound him to human form. Her face softened somewhat while he talked. How terrible, she said when he was finished. And then I'm just going to jump ahead a couple pages. Arbili, the tinsmith I told you about, he tells me I must be cautious, and I know he is right to a degree, but if I hide away forever, I'll go mad, and neither of us should have to give every night over to our fears. The idea had been building in his mind as he spoke, and now he said, come walking with me instead. Her eyes widened in surprise, and instantly he wondered what had compelled him. She was so cautious, so afraid. She told him back, surely. Yet the thought of her caged in her room filled him with such horror, as if it were his own fate and not hers, that he'd spoken without truly considering. Doubtfully, she said, You're offering yourself as company. He resigned himself to his offer. Let us say, one night a week. It makes sense, doesn't it? A lone woman would draw attention, but this way you wouldn't be alone. And where exactly would you take me? He began to warm to the task of convincing her. I could show you many things. Places like this, he gestured to the water and glass around them. The parks at night, the rivers. We could walk all night long and only see a fraction of this city. If all you've seen is your own neighbourhood, then you have no idea. To his surprise, his enthusiasm was growing genuine. She turned back to the fish as if looking to them for her answer or reassurance. All right she said at last. For now, we'll say one night only, a week from today. But there's something you need to know first. It wouldn't be fair to you otherwise. Visibly, she gathered her courage and said, when you told me what happened to you was the wizard, I answered a question. There's a need in you. He gave her a quizzical look, but she went on. Golems are meant to be ruled by a master, a golem senses its master's thoughts and responds to them without thinking. My own master is dead, but that ability didn't go away. It took him a moment to realise what she was saying. He felt himself start to recoil. You can read minds. Quickly she shook her head. Nothing as certain as that. Fears, desires, needs. If I'm not careful, they can overwhelm me. But you're different. Different how? Harder to see clearly. She was searching his face now. He repressed the urge to back away. I see your face is lit from within and shaded without. Your mind is the same. It's as though part of you is constantly struggling to be free. It shadows everything else. This, he thought, was much more than he had bargained for. He now understood her uncanny presence, her sense of listening to something unheard, but the explanation was even more unsettling. I only wanted you to know, she said. I'll understand if you withdraw your offer. He considered. Well, it was only one night. If she proved too eerie, they would part company. My offer still stands, he said. One night, one week from today. And she smiled. They left the aquarium and made their way back to her neighbourhood. The streets were uncommonly quiet, the dark broken by a lamplit window here and there. As they walked, he found himself examining his own thoughts. He found no desires that he was ashamed of her seeing. And his fears, 
captivity, boredom, discovery, each of which she knew as well as he. Perhaps, he thought, it will not be so terrible. They would walk about, they would talk. It would be a novelty, if nothing else. (laughs) And that's how the golem and the Jenny become friends. (laughs) That's so cute. Yeah. So they go on their weekly walks together at night because... It is the 1800s and Shava can't walk around at night by herself mm-hmm. and it's just very sweet. And I love how we have almost the entire first half of the book getting to know them separately mm-hmm. and then we finally have this moment where they both have to learn how to understand each other and it's just really lovely. So that's me, that's the Golem and the Jenny. It goes without saying but I really love this one. <laughs> you were talking in a previous episode about a book feeling cosy mm-hmm. and it's like a similar feeling that I get from this one it's a fairly long book it's over 600 pages which is why I didn't mind going heavy on the quotes Mm -hmm. because I've barely told you anything about the plot (laughs) and as I said at the start it's like the meandering nature of it that I really love like you feel like you're living in the world because you get to spend so much time in it with the characters and I do think it makes sense for a book about immortal beings or they're not immortal exactly but they live very long lives Mm. and I think it makes sense that the story isn't fast-paced because of that so yeah I just think it's beautiful magical and I have no idea what the sequel is about because I like specifically didn't want to look it up but I am definitely going to read it because I really want more of this (laughs) (laughs) it's like yeah like it sounds really cozy like you say and it makes me want to read it because it feels yeah like meandering and like yeah kind of I I imagine there is like drama and angst and emotion blah blah blah, but it feels quite soft yeah definitely like because I know you're not a massive fantasy reader like I know you don't mind it and Mm. I I do think yeah because it's got that like cozy nature I think you would really enjoy it seems like a very human fantasy oh yeah definitely like it definitely is more the kind of magical realism side to fantasy like it's not it's not high fantasy Mm -hmm. it is very much the real world it just these two beings happen to be in it (laughs) i love that yeah i love the cover as well it's very pretty all the covers because i've looked up the multiple covers and all of them are so pretty but yeah i like this one it's got little stars all over it it's the green color it's very like soothing (laughs) yes so yeah that's that's me nice thank you what are you infatuated with? So my infatuation this week actually isn't a book. It's a technique that two of my favourite pieces of poetry use. Mm-hmm. So I thought I would share it. But a little context for the inspiration behind this infatuation. I've mentioned before on here that I sometimes attend Sabrina Benham's Good News Open Mic. But I've also recently enrolled in her button poetry workshop, Button Up. Mm-hmm which is more about writing and craft than performance and it is amazing and so the first week we were studying the idea of an erasure poem where one poem is blanked out to reveal another poem yeah and we learned that doing this to your own poetry because a lot of the time erasure poem you take someone else's poem and make something out of it yeah but we learned that doing this to one of your own poems is a good way to tell a fuller story without cramming everything into one poem Mm -hmm. so you can like show different sides of a story by erasing some of the words yeah so I was thinking about that 
and I'm a huge like subscriber to the idea that it's better to write lots of good pieces of work on the same subject than to try and conquer it all in one like massive piece yeah because that never works and we see that with songwriters all the time like you'll have a full album examining one relationship or event with all the different emotions of it across all the different tracks yeah so I was thinking about all of that and the idea that sometimes we think that being repetitive is a bad thing but then I realized that two of my favorite I guess like sets of poetry are companion poems that repeat and they're better for existing alongside each other much like an erasure poem. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to give like credit to Sabrina for <laughs> making, <laughs> making me think of that. I'm going to just, yeah, show what I mean and people can get a little bit of insight. The first one, the first set of poetry I'm going to read is three poems by Sabrina Benham. <laughs> and they are actually the poems which make her collection Depression and Other Magic Tricks one of my favourite books. And I've definitely read at least one of them on here before, but fuck it. Like, <laughs> so I'm just going to read all three of them back to back because that's the easiest way to give you the idea. So this one is called Untitled One. I drink my coffee black every morning. I like how looking at you makes me feel. Twice I asked to kiss you. The second time there was a lump in my throat. I like to believe it was a metaphor. A plain tumour is all it was. I've woken up, looked in the mirror and thought, damn, I look good today. If I'm late, it is because I don't know how to plan time. Cut to me blushing, laughing, of course. We were no full moon. In my poems, you are the dream of you. The falling stars are just glitter, just thousands of tiny LED lights poured down from the sky. That July was a fire that minded its own business. The following June was just 30 days the moon was a strawberry. It wasn't the drugs, the shadows on the ceiling weren't dancing again. I was walking backwards when I met you. You were not the first boy who I wrote into existence or loved. That thought unties my shoelaces. Once we were a crescent moon, weightless as a smile. I love you, still. I'm not sorry. I don't want to write about you anymore. Let's see how long we can go without talking. This time, if we really try, maybe I will forget your birthday. I miss you, but I don't wish you were here. And this is Untitled 2. You don't like coffee. You like what it does to your body. You like the way coffee makes your body feel. So you take your cream and sugar with coffee. I'm not sure why you kissed me back the first time. I suspect you like what it did to your body. You like the way my kiss made your body feel. Once, I let you wrap your palms around my neck to feel the tumour ride my throat like an elevator. You wear sweatshorts and I still want to fuck you. Once, you gave me a bouquet of pink roses or was it a fury of your puckered lips? When your elbow found mine in that crowd after a year of our mouths not speaking, I was not happy to see you. I was relieved. Once you said a person is either a peacekeeper or a pot stirrer. We both know which I am. I bet you think you're a peacekeeper. I bet you think magicians don't exist. You are the first dizzy windspell to trip my tornado. 
Once you smiled in my direction, and balloon on the loose, there I went so high I forgot which came first, you or the dream of you. You told me once, after work, you took the bus all the way to West to watch the sunset, only to miss it. You said you were so glad you made it to me on time. If you came back, I would not ask why. You may say none of this ever happened. Oh, I like that one. Yeah. Um, I say that after every Sabrina Venom poem. I just like, I like them all. (laughs) So this third one is called A Vowel. I drink my coffee black. You don't like coffee. You like what it does to your body. You like the way the coffee makes your body feel. So you take your cream and sugar with coffee every morning. This is not about you. I like how looking at you makes me feel. Twice I asked to kiss you, the second time how you said, I just don't think I can give you what you want. I'm not sure why you kissed me back the first time. I suspect you like what it did to your body. You liked the way my kiss made your body feel. Once there was a lump in my throat. I like to believe it was a metaphor. Every feeling I have swallowed. A plain tumour is all it was. See how this is my story. I have woken up, looked in the mirror and thought, damn, I look good today. You wear sweatshorts and I still want to fuck you. Once you gave me a bouquet of pink roses or was it a fury of your puckered lips? If I am late, it is because I was too anxious to leave. I don't know how to plan time. When your elbow found mine in that crowd after a year of our mouths not speaking, I was not happy to see you. I was relieved. Cut to me blushing. Laughing, of course. Weren't you dancing beside me? We were no full moon. Once you said a person is either a peacekeeper or a potster. We both know which I am. I bet you think you're a peacekeeper. In my poems, you are the dream of you. Maybe is an alternate universe. The falling stars are just glitter, just thousands of tiny LED lights poured down from the sky. That July was a fire that minded its own business. The following June was just 30 days, the moon was a strawberry. It wasn't the drugs, the shadows on the ceiling weren't dancing again. I was walking backwards when I met you. I made all of this magic. I bet you think magicians don't exist. You are not the first boy who I wrote into existence or loved. You are the first dizzy wind spell to trip my tornado. Once you smiled in my direction and balloon on the loose there, I went so high I forgot which came first, you or the dream of you. That thought unties my shoelaces. Once we were a crescent moon, weightless as a smile. You told me once, after work, you took the bus all the way west to watch the sunset only to miss it. You said you were so glad you made it to me on time. I love you, still. I'm not sorry. I don't want to write about you anymore. Let's see how long we can go without talking. This time, if we really try, maybe I'll forget your birthday. Maybe. If you came back, I would not ask why. I miss you, but I don't wish you were here. You may say none of this ever happened, but some of the details sure fit. Abracadabra. (laughs) 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 <laughs> that's a good line to end on <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love those poems so much <laughs> what I love about the set of them is that they fit together almost like a jigsaw as she's done mm-hmm. at the end there 
but each one completely stands on its own. Yeah. Like, I had only heard the first one. Mm-hmm. And then I heard the third one. And I didn't know the second one, even though it's what makes... You know what I mean? Yeah. So, but in the book, the order that you encounter them is very purposeful. It doesn't want to break the big one down. It wants to build the first two up as part of a larger whole. Mm. So it's kind of like the opposite of Erasure. Uh-huh. Which I think is cool. And when I saw her perform this live a few years ago, I remember Sabrina said, every story has three sides. My side, your side, and the truth. And she said she reckoned the truth wasn't independent of those two sides, but made of them both. Mm. And I think that that third one shows that, like, what we tell ourselves is the truth, is just, like, the final narrative that you give to something before you, like, close it off. Yeah. And you can't see it, obviously, but on the page, the lines that don't belong to either of the first poems are in bold. Um, And if I read them on their own, they make what I think you could argue is the third side. So I'll just, if you read them just the, the odd lines out, a vowel goes, This is not about you. How you said, I just don't think I can give you what you want. Every feeling I have swallowed, see how this is my story. I was too anxious to leave. Weren't you dancing beside me? Maybe as an alternate universe. I made all of this magic. Maybe. Some of the details sure fit. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's just so clever. And I love that technique of repetition used to like widen the context and give you more narrative because it shows like movement of empathy and healing, right? Because at first you always only see your own side. Mm-hmm. And then maybe you see the other person's side. And then maybe after a little bit of time, you stop like feeling it and you just see it as a story. Yeah. And so the structure serves the narrative because it tells you the whole story, but it also serves like the emotional agenda of the poems, yep. which I think makes it really work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love that. So oh, also they have some of my favorite lines ever. <laughs> yeah. No, those are like very pretty poems as yeah. well. Just like the actual lines. Oh, I love the whole like crescent moon weightless as a smile yeah yeah i like that yeah the one that always gets me is this time if we really try maybe i will forget your birthday just like ruins me every time (laughs) and also like i want i miss you but i don't wish you were here like tattooed on the inside of my eyelids (laughs) so another poet who uses this technique is louise gluck who won the nobel prize for literature last year Mm, so she's like a big deal (laughs) <laughs> and she uses <laughs> Go Louise. Um, I'm so happy for her. But um, she uses it quite often. But my favourite example of it is in her Persephone the Wanderer mm. poems, which I think you'll enjoy. Yeah. <laughs> so these are two companion poems which are so closely linked that they have the same title. They're both called Persephone the Wanderer. Okay. Occasionally they're marked one or two to signal the different poems, but I really like the ballsiness of like giving two poems the same title. Yeah. And you're just not giving a shit about who you confuse with that. Yeah, I love that. Because they are literally the same story. Yeah. So I'll read them in order, like one and two, but yeah. before I do, I'll just give a quick recap of the myth for anyone who doesn't yeah. know. So Persephone, according to legend, so this is a Greek myth for anyone that's not sure. Um, <laughs> she was a young maiden and the daughter of Demeter goddess of the harvest. So Hades, the guardian of the underworld, saw Persephone out picking flowers in a meadow, liked the look of her, and stole her by opening a cavern straight down to hell. 
once there, depending on who's telling the story, he raped her or they fell in love. She ate six pomegranate seeds, which meant she was bound to hell, because that's how magic works. Yep. And Demeter lost her daughter. Demeter, being goddess of the harvest, went into such a twisted and grief-stricken state of mourning that she scorched the earth and withered the crops, starving the land and creating what was essentially the first winter. Zeus begged her to have mercy. She said only if she could have Persephone back, but Persephone had eaten the pomegranate, so it was all a big stalemate. But a deal was struck where Persephone could come back to Earth for some of the year. Some people say a third, some people say half. Doesn't really matter. But then the rest of the time, she had to rule the underworld with Hades. So when Persephone returned, Demeter was so happy that she let it grow again, creating spring. But each year when Persephone returns to the underworld, Demeter grieves and everything dies. Winter. So, mother-daughter story, invention of the seasons. Here we go. (laughs) And that's what you missed on Glee. (laughs) So this is Persephone the Wanderer 1. And it's from 1943. In the first version... Persephone is taken from her mother and the goddess of the earth punishes the earth. This is consistent with what we know of human behaviour, that human beings take profound satisfaction in doing harm, particularly unconscious harm. We may call this negative creation. Persephone's initial sojourn in hell continues to be pawed over by scholars who dispute the sensations of the virgin. Did she cooperate in her rape or was she drugged? violated against her will, as happens so often now to modern girls. As is well known, the return of the beloved does not correct the loss of the beloved. Persephone returns home, stained with red juice like a character in Hawthorne. I am not certain that I will keep this word. Is Earth home to Persephone? Is she at home, conceivably, in the bed of the god? Is she at home nowhere? Is she born a wanderer? In other words, an existential replica of her own mother, less hamstrung by ideas of causality. You are allowed to like no one you know. The characters are not people. They are aspects of a dilemma or conflict. Three parts, just as the soul is divided. Ego, superego, id. Likewise, the three levels of the known world, a kind of diagram that separates heaven from earth from hell, You must ask yourself, where is it snowing? White of forgetfulness, of desecration. It is snowing on earth, the cold wind says. Persephone is having sex in hell. Unlike the rest of us, she doesn't know what winter is, only that she causes it. She is lying in the bed of Hades. What is in her mind? Is she afraid? Has something blotted out the idea of mind? She does know the earth is run by mothers, this much is certain. She also knows she is not what is called a girl any longer. Regarding incarceration, she believes she has been a prisoner since she has been a daughter. The terrible reunions in store for her will take up the rest of her life. When the passion for expiation is chronic, fierce, you do not choose the way you live. You do not live. You are not allowed to die. You drift between earth and death, which seem finally strangely alike. Scholars tell us that there is no point in knowing what you want when the forces contending over you could kill you. White of forgetfulness, white of safety. They say there is a rift in the human soul which was not constructed to belong entirely to life. Earth asks us to deny this rift, a threat disguised as a suggestion. 
we have seen in the tale of Persephone, which should be read as an argument between the mother and the lover, the daughter is just meat. When death confronts her, she has never seen the meadow without the daisies. Suddenly, she is no longer singing her maidenly songs about her mother's beauty and fecundity. Where the rift is, the break is. Song of the earth, song of the mystic vision of eternal life. My soul shattered with the strain of trying to belong to earth. What will you do when it is your turn in the field with the god? Nice. Which is like a lot to unpack. I like that that's, there are very beautiful lines in it, but it's almost just sounds like an essay. Yeah. Like, rather than a poem. I love it. I love that it is basically just, it's not, yeah, it's not like a poetic poem. Yeah. It's a very, like, academic poem. Yeah. Louise Gluck's good at that kind of thing. <laughs> she doesn't really pretty up stuff. Yeah. So this is Persephone the Wanderer too. In the second version, Persephone is dead. She dies, her mother grieves, problems of sexuality need not trouble us here. Compulsively, in grief, Demeter circles the earth. We don't expect to know what Persephone is doing. She is dead. The dead are mysteries. We have here a mother and a cipher. This is accurate to the experience of the mother as she looks into the infant's face. She thinks, I remember when you didn't exist. The infant is puzzled. Later, the child's opinion is she has always existed, just as her mother has always existed in her present form. Her mother is like a figure at a bus stop, an audience for the bus's arrival. Before that, she was the bus, a temporary home or convenience. Persephone, protected, stares out the window of the chariot. What does she see? A morning in early spring, in April. Now her whole life is beginning. Unfortunately, it's going to be a short life. She's going to know really only two adults, death and her mother. But two is twice what her mother has. Her mother has one child, a daughter. As a god, she could have had a thousand children. We begin to see here the deep violence of the earth, whose hostility suggests she has no wish to continue as a source of life. And why is this hypothesis never discussed? Because it is not in the story. It only creates the story. In grief, after the daughter dies, the mother wanders the earth. She's preparing her case. Like a politician, she remembers everything and admits nothing. For example, her daughter's birth was unbearable. Her beauty was unbearable. She remembers this. She remembers Persephone's innocence, her tenderness. What is she planning, seeking her daughter? She is issuing a warning, whose implicit message is, what are you doing outside my body? You ask yourself, why is the mother's body safe? The answer is, this is the wrong question, since the daughter's body doesn't exist except as a branch of the mother's body that needs to be reattached at any cost. When a god grieves, it means destroying others as in war, while at the same time petitioning to reverse agreements as in war also. If Zeus will get her back, winter will end. Winter will end. Spring will return. The small pestering breezes that I so loved, the idiot yellow flowers. Spring will return, a dream based on a falsehood, that the dead return. Persephone was used to death. Now over and over her mother hauls her out again. You must ask yourself, are the flowers real? If Persephone returns, there will be one of two reasons. Either she was not dead, or she is being used to support a fiction. 
I think I can remember being dead. Many times in winter I approached Zeus. Tell me, I would ask him, how can I endure the earth? And he would say, in a short time you will be here again. And in the time between, you will forget everything. Those fields of ice will be the meadows of Elysium. It's so <laughs> mythical. Yeah. I love it. So long, though. Much to say. <clears throat> so yeah, there's a lot to unpack in these. And I'm not going to get into the nuts and bolts of those two poems. <laughs> but the bottom line for me here is this. The Persephone myth is always about Persephone. Because she's the one that action happens to. And she's the catalyst. And both of these poems are called Persephone the Wanderer, but only one is really about Persephone. Mm. The second one is all about Demeter, and it's because without the mother, there's no daughter, they're one unit, one season cycle of maidenhood to womanhood. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, in the original myth, the deal actually gets sorted out because the grandmother persuades Zeus to fix it. And so in this story, you actually have representation of the like witchy trifecta of the maiden, the mother, and the crone. And so the origin of the seasons isn't because of Persephone, it's because of Persephone and Demeter. Mm-hmm. And there's so much speculation surrounding like studies of this myth about whether Persephone loved Hades or whether he captured her, but that doesn't really come into the debate here. Hades is kind of incidental, and the debate here is whether Persephone was ever really free to begin with. And I just think that this is a really good example of how companion poems can work as devices for getting into nuances of different perspectives and relationships Mm -hmm. and how different perspectives influence and impact each other it's really hard to do that in prose in the same way if you're not going to just straight up have two narrative um, like two narrators and so I just think that that's somewhere that poetry really shines and it's underused yeah no definitely because I I have thought before about um... Because I'm writing a novel now, but I'm planning another. And I keep having similar themes come up. And I think part of me was like, oh no, like I can't do that. But then I was thinking about authors that I do really like, like Erin Morgenstern. Like, both of her books, they're very different settings, but they're both just about writing in books. Mm-hmm. Like, like that's the magic of it. And I'm like, oh, it is kind of nice that you can... I would say more so with poetry than novels, but like with any kind of writing, you can keep returning to the same subject and just look at it in different ways yeah and I think like I love the idea that you're not just incidentally coming back to it but that you're like yeah. drawing attention to the idea that you're coming back to it because yeah. you're sort of going this is another facet of this this is another facet yeah. of this yeah. so yeah those poems are probably the ones that I like that are the least pretty but mm. I just think they're so intelligent. Like, I still don't fully understand them, and I've mm. written essays, plural, <laughs> on those poems, yeah. and I don't understand them, and I just think, like, yeah, I love I love an intelligent piece of writing. <laughs> yeah, definitely. For our writing chat this week, we have a question... What's on your writing bucket list? Hmm. Am I going? Yeah. What's yours? I have more than one answer. The first is the obvious one. It's just that I would like to be a published author. Mm. Like, I want to see my book in bookshops. And, like, specifically that the novel I'm working on now will, like, be a thing and find its audience, even if it's, like, only a few people. Because I know it's, it's the kind of book I would love to read. So, like, 
I can imagine it on a shelf with like my favorite books Mm -hmm. (laughs) so like more and more and more I'm trying to act like that's inevitable like I was trying to pick like I know bucket list kind of comes across as like kind of wildly not possible but I was trying to like approach this as like things that I actually think are possible Mm. because yeah even though I still need to like redraft it I'm the closest I've ever been to that bucket list goal Mm -hmm. that's one and then the second thing is that I want to see my characters brought to life in some way and I don't necessarily mean like a screen adaptation because to be honest the book I'm writing now I don't think would be a very (laughs) good film but like just the idea that people would like do artwork or Mm. like dress up as my characters or just like have thoughts about what they would do or say or like they would like make a meme about them (laughs) or something like I just think that's so cool and like yeah maybe with another book like actors actually playing them because I got so emotional when I saw Lee Verdugo's cameo in Shadow and Bone like (laughs) it really it like I got really choked up because I was just so excited for her like and as well there's videos of when she meets the cast for the first time like in costume and stuff and she's like crying (laughs) because she's just like you you look like them it's so eerie I think is what she says so yeah she gets like hug her character and I've like tried to put myself in her shoes and imagine what that would be like and I think I would probably just cry as well (laughs) so those are basically my bucket list things to be published and then to just kind of like see people like see other people imagine the characters yeah that makes sense love that yeah what about you so i have two as well and i actually didn't put be published (laughs) because i like to be fair that one's kind of a given though isn't it in my head i was like that's happened yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) but no i think when i was thinking about things that i'd love to do but that might not happen i want to adapt something for screen yeah not necessarily something of mine but just, like, something to try that medium. That was a close third for yeah. me. <laughs> um, like, we've said this before, we'd both love to do that. Yeah. And, like, I really do, at some point, I'd love to try and do that. Yeah. And then my other one was kind of similar to yours. I would love if my work inspired some sort of work in another medium. Mm-hmm. So, like, if someone used one of my lines to write a song or drew an animation of one of my stories or... Like, I don't know, something. I see that happening and I think the original author must feel amazing. Yeah. So I think I just want to, like, spark a little bit of ekphrastic work yeah. with my work. Oh, I love that. Like a little chain of art. Yeah. Even if it's nothing to do with my yeah thing, but, like, someone goes and makes something because of that thing. Yeah, yeah. That would be cool. Yeah. What's your quickfire favourite? My favourite is a song. Mm-hmm. It's from The Neighbourhood's newest album, Chip Chrome and the Monotones, which is <laughs> such a good name for an album, <laughs> which is really up there for my favourite album of theirs, which is saying a lot because I think they have five albums and I literally love all of them. But yeah, for this album, I love every song, but the one I've had on repeat recently is one called Pretty Boy. Mm-hmm. It's really like soft and gentle and jesse rutherford's voice is just oh it's just so gorgeous and like this kind of song 
it's kind of reminiscent of like a cigarettes after sex okay. song like it's that kind of oh gentle like lullaby <laughs> type song i love them as well yeah um so yeah i just thought i'd read out some of the lines because there's actually not a lot of lyrics in it and mm. they're kind of repeated a lot it's mostly about like creating a mood but at the beginning and the end it goes even if my heart stops beating you're the only thing i need oh with me even if the earth starts shaking you're the only thing worth taking oh with me even if the sky's on fire got you here it's all right oh with me and if it's all over i'm taking this moment oh with me oh yeah so it's got this lovely like half rhyme and then like the repetition of like the oh with me mm-hmm. in it which i just think makes it feel very like dreamy and it's just a very romantic song while also just being quite chill <laughs> yeah and yeah i'm just a fan of everything the neighborhood does anyway i think they're great um i think you'd like that song yeah it sounds like it yeah <laughs> what's your quick fire favorite my quick fire favorite is so eerily similar okay. to that my absolute fave Maisie Peters has dropped some long awaited new music oh, yeah. she created a whole soundtrack for the new TV show Trying and the lead single on it is a duet of her and James Bay and it's called Funeral and it is so upbeat and so devastating <laughs> um, but I thought that you'd really like the lyrics because they're very like high melodrama gothic in some places, but then they're really simplistic in others. Okay. So like similar to what yeah. you just said. <laughs> the hook of the song is I want you to want me when you're dead, to roll in your grave like we're not done yet, to call off the whole damn funeral because our love is so damn beautiful. <laughs> it's very Wuthering Heights. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is obviously like so intensely dramatic, yeah. but then the reason that I had to pick this one is that there's this four line section in the second chorus, which I'm just obsessed with because I feel like if we wrote a song together, like it would have words like this in it. Okay. So it just is like got stuff all around it, and then it says, To chase every satellite and star, I pin all of my hopes to your handlebars. The truth is I'd be such a jealous ghost. I'd scrub all your lovers' names out the stone. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, <laughs> as like it's got stars and satellites, which we both use yeah. in our writing. It's got ghosts, Ghost. which you use. It's got handlebars, which I always have bikes. I was like, yeah. this is a very <laughs> eerie. Weird. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll have to listen to that, because I like James Bay as well. Yeah, so. yeah, and his voice, oh my god, this is not even this too much but there's a really good line in it where he like shrieks your heart was full of boys and brimstone oh yeah and i was just like yes (laughs) oh what a mood (laughs) so yeah i recommend that song nice i will definitely listen to that Okay, do you have a root for us? Yes, since I used the word earlier, I thought I'd do my root on the word ekphrastic or ekphrasis <gasps> for that anyone that's not familiar. So the proper meaning is using words as a creative response to a piece of visual art. So like writing a story based on a painting. But I've heard it expanded out to mean any artistic practice which is inspired by art of another medium. 
and as you guess by the sound, it comes from the Greek ek, meaning out, and phrasin, meaning tell, like phrase. When translated, out phrase becomes tell out, or recount. Ek phrasin then becomes Latin ek phrasis. But interestingly, which I thought was cool, although the word is very ancient, and the practice of ek phrasis is ancient, because it first appears, I think, in the Iliad, when Homer describes the stories on Achilles' shield. Oh, yeah. That word was only added to the English dictionary and brought into common use in the 18th century. Really? Hmm. Hmm. So it's been happening forever, but they only, like, I don't know if they've just made up that word from those ancient, like, prefixes and suffixes. Yeah. Sounds like it could be. Yeah. Yeah. So. Nice. So that was cool. That is cool. Um, <laughs> do you have an insight for us? Yeah, so I've got another quiz for us this week. Oh, exciting. Um, so as of recording, we're making our way through Shadow and Bone mm. on Netflix, obviously. It's my second viewing, obviously. <laughs> um, so today I thought we'd do a good old-fashioned BuzzFeed quiz Woo. on which member of the crows from Shadow and Bone you are most like. Okay. So I've already done it, but I'll do yours and then I'll read out our answers. Cool. So, first, what is your greatest strength? I'm a natural born leader. I can keep a secret. I'm dependable. I'm optimistic. I'm adventurous. I'm a problem solver. Dependable. Choose a book to TV adaptation. Normal People, Game of Thrones, The Queen's Gambit, The Magicians, Little Fires Everywhere, or Outlander. I like the Queen's Gambit, but I'm going to go with normal people. Which object would you want the most? Kaz's cane, Jesper's guns, or Inez's knives? Inez's knives. Where would you be found at the Crow Club? Hanging out with my BFFs, at the same table gambling all night, in the corner watching everyone, doing business with an old friend, constantly ordering drinks, or stealing from the rich for Kaz? Uh, probably ordering drinks, let's be real. <laughs> okay, pick a Shadow and Bone character to go on a heist with. Alina Starkov, Maloretsev, Nina Zenik, Matthias Helvar, Jenya Safin, or David's Crostick, I think is how you say it. Jenya. Delight Jenya. Now, what would you do with one million Kruger? Buy a house, travel the world, start my own business, pay off my debts, split the money with my friends and family, or honestly, I'd buy a ton of books. <laughs> oh, be either travel or split the money. I'm probably quite selfish though, so travel. Travel, okay. And finally, pick a goat. You'll have to look at this one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, him. This guy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Ooh, you got Jesper. Yes, he's my fave. Your personality matches Jesper Fahey. You're charismatic, bold, and good-natured. Like Jesper, you love to be the life of the party. You're a risk-taker, and while that trait can sometimes get you into trouble, you always love a good challenge. You wear your heart on your sleeve, and you make friends easily. I'd say that's fairly accurate. That is fairly accurate. <laughs> You're going to laugh at mine. Can you guess who I got? Is it Kaz? Yeah. <laughs> So, I got, your personality matches Kaz Brecker. You're determined, intelligent, and a natural-born leader. Like Kaz, you're a problem solver, and your friends often turn to you for advice. 
Well, it takes you a little while to open up to new people. Once you do, they become your friend for life. You're someone who rushes into danger head on in order to protect the people you love. See, I wouldn't say natural born leader is true, but I'd say the rest of it's pretty true. I'm very protective of people. Yeah, you are. I've never seen you in like mortal peril, but I can imagine that you're not you're not a fairy, so Yeah. <laughs> so Yeah. Nice. Fairly accurate, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I like that we both got our favourites. I know. <laughs> So we have a question this week. Yeah, so our question... So that yeah, this one's from Dee. Again, we always pick his questions, but they're so good. They're so good. So this is, you meet someone who's never seen a movie ever, what do you show them? Ooh. Am I going or are you going? You go. Okay, so I thought long and hard about this one, but I've decided to go with not only one of my favourite films, my most watched films, but one that has just beat Citizen Kane out to become literally <laughs> known as the greatest film ever, and that is Paddington 2. Yes! Now, don't get me wrong, first Paddington film, fantastic, but Paddington 2 is where it's at. <laughs> you have the most delightful bear, who is orphaned in Peru, and now lives with the Browns in London, whose entire motivation during this film is to find a pop-up book to give to his Aunt Lucy, who is living in the home for retired bears for her birthday. And Hugh Grant plays a villainous actor who also wants his pop-up book because it actually leads to like some secret treasure. And it's just amazing. It makes me cry from happiness every time. <laughs> I know. <laughs> no word of a lie. It's just so pure and lovely and genuinely funny. And the action scenes are actually really great as well. Um, yeah, there's a really good suspense scene in that film. Yeah. And also, like, the Paddington films are a metaphor for, like, the refugee crisis in the UK and how London, like, is and should be this multicultural place mm. that would accept a bear from Peru <laughs> into their community. <laughs> so it has, like, a lot of humanity and heart to it amongst all of, like, the sweet stuff and the funny stuff. And I just think if someone's never seen a film before then they should watch one that is like the epitome of how film can be a very positive influence, not just on your mood, but also on like society. <laughs> it's society great. It could be fixed by Paddington too. Genuinely. If we are kind and polite, the world will be right. That's what Paddington says. <laughs> oh, that's, that's wonderful. That is a great answer. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> what's yours so i also thought quite hard about this but i've gone with two options because i couldn't choose so i thought my first option was the lion king mm. because it has got music and beautiful animation and so much wisdom in it that if you'd never seen a movie it has like all of these elements that would make you fall in love with a movie yeah or it happened one night because it might be the best movie ever made. It's a good one. Because it is the peak of physical and verbal comedy, but it's never stupid. Yeah. And the camera work is hilarious and amazing. Yeah. And yeah, I just... I couldn't... Ch I was like, really? My, my heart says The Lion King? <laughs> but everything that I love about films says it happened one yeah. night. 
I also love that like that's such an early example of film and they just got it right from the start. Yeah, it's <laughs> like, from like 1929 or something yeah, like that. Yeah, it's really early, isn't and it? And it's yeah. perfect. Like, there's not one beat in it that's wrong. Yeah, I would have to agree. So, yeah, if you've not watched It Happened One Night, give it a watch. <laughs> it's really good. <laughs> Okay, so that's us this week. If you have any comments or questions, then our email is infatuatedpodcast at outlook.com. We also have social media, which is linked in the show notes, along with everything we've talked about today, including the Infatuated Mix, which has all the music that we mention. And please rate and review us on your podcast apps, because that helps get the podcast out there. Please do. (laughs) Okay, goodbye. Bye. Bye.